If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. We'll read the first ten verses. Luke 19, 1 to 10. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not, because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him, and said to him, Zacchaeus, Make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He is gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. If I mention the name Zacchaeus to you, what do you think about? And for most of us, when we think of Zacchaeus, we, we could probably say he was a wee little man. You remember the song that we sang in Sunday school, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he? He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Savior he wanted to see. And when the Savior passed that way, he looked up in a tree and said, Zacchaeus, you come down from there, for I'm going to your house today. But can I tell you that if all you think about with Zacchaeus is the fact he was a short man, that he was a wee little man, then you're missing a lot of this story. And and we're going to look at that this morning. And before we dig into Zacchaeus' story, we need to go back. There was another instance in Jesus' life in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus runs into another tax collector named Levi or Matthew. And this tax collector is in his tax booth. And Luke tells us there in Luke chapter 5 that Jesus says two words to him. Jesus said, follow me. And Matthew became one of Jesus' disciples, apostles. And after that, Matthew throws a party for Jesus and invites a lot of tax collectors. Luke is very unique in his gospel in the fact that he points out over and over again the fact that Jesus comes and he ministers to people who are on the fringes of society. He ministers to people who society looks at as less than worthy. 
tax collectors fit that bill. Hating the IRS is nothing new. Tax collectors have never, we humans have never liked to pay taxes. Another interesting fact about Luke is that several places in the Gospel of Luke, Luke talks about rich people. He talked about the rich farmer in Luke 12. Remember when the rich farmer had such a bumper crop and he said, uh, I've, I've got so many crops, what am I going to do with all these crops? I, I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns. And he says, I'll sit back and I'll say, just soul, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Gee, then God tells him, you forgot something. He says, God told him, I'm taking your life tonight. And then who's all these things going to be? And then in Luke 16, Luke talks about the rich man and Lazarus. Remember the rich man who was had a, lived the good life. There was a beggar named Lazarus that ate at the table. Brother Gray preached on this during our revival, if you'll remember. And the rich man died, and where did he end up? In torment. <clears throat> and then there's another instance Luke speaks of a rich man, and that's in Luke 18, the previous chapter to uh, Zacchaeus, and it's the context of this message. He spoke to a man, a rich, we call him the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus told him ultimately to sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And the man went away sorrowfully. So Luke talks about how riches quite often keeps a person from following God. That riches, wealth, and stuff can stand in the way of people getting to Jesus. And he also talks about how Jesus comes to those people that society has forgotten. And with that backdrop in mind, let's jump into our text today here in Luke chapter 19, verse 1. Verse 1 tells us, Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Ever since Luke chapter 9, verse 51, that's a verse you need to know in the life of Jesus. Luke 9, 51, Luke tells us that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And what that means is from Luke chapter 9, verse 51, the whole rest of Luke's gospel talks about Jesus' last trip to Jerusalem. And when it says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, it means that Jesus knew he had a destiny and a date to keep with the cross. And as we get to Luke 19, Jericho is going to be the last town, that, or the last major town that Jesus is going to pass through on his way to Jerusalem. If you look a little further into Luke 19, you'll see what we call the triumphal entry where Jesus comes into Jerusalem. So we are almost to the last week of Jesus' life. And Jesus arrives at Jericho, which is also known as the City of Palms. Jericho sits six miles north of the Dead Sea and six miles west of the Jordan River. It was 15 miles from Jerusalem, 
and there was an elevation climb of about 3,400 feet during those uh, uh, during those 15 miles. It took about eight hours to walk from Jericho into Jerusalem, and it was uphill both the way, uh, all the way. Remember how our parents and grandparents used to say when they went to school, they walked to school, and it was uphill both ways? Well, it was uphill. You see, look at a map, uh, and I'll just... This is not important, but it's something to help you with your Bible study. When you look at a map of Palestine, you will see that Jericho is south of Jerusalem. But quite often in Scripture, it says that people went up from Jerusalem to Jericho. And so you say, well, if it's, if it's south, should you be going up from Jericho to Jerusalem? But actually, the reason it says they went up from Jerusalem to Jericho or from Jericho to Jerusalem is because it was uphill all the way. So even geographically, it was south of Jerusalem. Don't let that confuse you. That's not a contradiction in the Bible. Some people say, well, the Bible didn't even get the geography right. What they meant was it was an uphill walk. And it was a difficult walk. Well, what about Jericho? Jericho's not just a sleepy little village. Jericho was a desired destination for several reasons. First of all, because of its beauty. It was the garden city of the ancient world. It was certainly the garden city of the land at Israel of Israel at that time. It was built and landscaped and designed by Herod Archelaus. It was fed by springs that were producing ample amounts of water. They were brought into the city by an aqueduct from the Jordan River. And they were used to irrigate the area so that it bloomed in a magnificent way. Eldershein, the great historian, says, and I've typed this because I want to quote it so you can picture Jericho in your mind. It was characterized by groves of feathery palms rising in stately beauty, stretched gardens of roses and sweet-scented balsam plantations. The largest of these plantations behind the royal garden, of which the perfume is carried by the wind, almost out to sea, and which probably gave the city its name, the perfumed place. It was the Eden of Palestine, the fairy land of the old world. So Jericho was known for its beauty. Jericho was known for its culture. There was an amphitheater in Jericho, built by Herod. They had plays. They had dramatic uh, interpretations. They had schools. Uh, it was very a culturally important city. It was known for its climate. A person could wear the thinnest layer of clothing even in the winter. Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, it wasn't super hot in the summer, and you could wear just a thin shirt in the winter and stay comfortable. It was known for its commercial prospects. It was a remarkable place. Its streets would have been filled with a diversified group of people. Uh, there were routes, trading routes, going north, south, east, and west out of Jericho. It was a military center. It was a political center. The skyline, as you came into Jericho, would feature four fortresses, one of which was a new palace for Herod and, and his people. It was also known for its thieves. Remember in the book of Luke, where Luke tells us a certain man went down from 
Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. Uh, the story of the Good Samaritan was takes place and was set on that road between Jericho and Jerusalem. There, that area is made, made of natural limestone, and that limestone, there are a lot of caves that are there. And these caves made a perfect place for bandits to hide out and rob people. So people, when you would travel from Jerusalem to Jericho, and vice versa, you had to keep your eyes open. It was a, it was a bad part of town. So overall, you could find everything in Jericho from soldiers to prostitutes and everything in between. You could find the worst of everything. You could also find the best of everything. There were a lot of tax collectors in Jericho because Jericho was one of three regional tax centers in Palestine. The northern tax center was Capernaum. The one on the seacoast was Caesarea. And then the one in the southern part of Palestine was Jericho. And, and Jewish males would come to Jerusalem at least three times a year. And they had to pass through Jericho to get there. And so I want you to picture this in your mind. Picture a rural setting. And people are sitting on their porch. And they're watching the road as people go by. Have you ever sat on your front porch and just watched people drive by and wonder who it is that's going to drive it? People in the city don't do that as much as they do in the country, I suppose. But picture that and all of a sudden word comes that Jesus is at the fords of Jericho. Because verse 1 tells us Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's, he's coming to Jericho and he's got to cross the Jordan River to get there. Jesus is coming close. Jesus of Nazareth is at the fords of the river. He's nearly there. He's nearly here. Imagine mothers holding their babies on the off chance Jesus might pick them up and bless them. I wonder if he'll do a miracle. I wonder if he'll heal somebody. I wonder if he'll feed us. I wonder if he'll raise someone from the dead. I wonder if he'll feed us. I wonder if he'll stay the night in one of the religious leaders' homes. I wonder if he'll feed us. I said that on purpose three times. That's the way we humans are. We like to eat. You know, somebody asks, how can you tell Baptists are involved? Because there's a chicken involved. Uh, everything that we, we, we like to eat. What's Jesus going to do? I promise you that with all the in anticipation that's built up here about What's Jesus going to do? Where's he going to stay? Where's he going to go? Who's he going to see? What's he going to do? How's he going to act? What Jesus actually did was the last thing on these people's minds. And we'll get into that here just a little bit further. Nobody saw this coming. Verse 1 tells us Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Some virgins say, and was passing through Jericho. Puts that in the present tense. Then Dr. Luke introduces us to Zacchaeus in verses 2 through 4. And he gives us several descriptors of this man. First of all, we find out that Zacchaeus was rich. Or first of all, he was a chief tax collector. Not only was Zacchaeus a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector. His position would have been higher on the food chain than Matthew's position. 
Matthew was a tax collector. Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector. And we need to stop right here and talk about why did the Jews hate tax collectors so much? Well, the obvious answer is nobody likes to pay taxes, right? If I were to ask you today, how many of you all, the IRS is your favorite organization? None of us would raise our hands, right? We don't like the IRS. People never liked paying taxes, and they never will like paying taxes. But this relationship between Jews and tax collectors was something different. These tax collectors would, for the most part, have been Jewish by heritage. But they worked for the Roman government. And they would collect taxes, and here's the way this would work. And I'm simplifying it, but basically the emperor would say that the citizens of the Roman Empire have to pay 2% tax. Well, the tax collectors would say, everybody here in Capernaum or in Jericho or in Caesarea, you have to pay 5% or 3% or 6%, whatever the tax collector could get out of them above Rome's 2%, they could keep it. And most of the tax collectors were very, very wealthy. They got rich out of doing this. So that's the Jews, first of all, looked at them as traitors for working for the Romans, but also as traitors because they were cheating them out of their money. And a chief tax collector would have been, he was the best of the cheaters. He would finagle, he, he got promoted to a chief tax collector. So that's our friend, Zacchaeus. He's a chief tax collector. But he's also rich. And as we've said, he probably gained his wealth by cheating rich people. Or by cheating the, the common people. He became rich by cheating the common people. And we've already said that Luke talked about the rich farmer, the rich young ruler, or the rich uh, man in Luke 16, and the rich young ruler. All three of these rich folks, there's something different about them than Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is rich as well, but he's different. And so keep your mind thinking about that. We'll talk about why here in just a little bit. So Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. He was rich. In the third place, he wanted to see who Jesus was. We don't know why Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. Who knows? Was he curious? Everybody talked about Jesus. Jesus, he has rock star popularity by this time. Everywhere Jesus went, the crowds followed him, wanting to see a miracle, wanting to get fed, wanting to get healed, wanting to get blessed. So maybe he was curious. Maybe he wanted companionship. There are probably not a lot of people that would spend time with Zacchaeus other than maybe wanting to throw rocks at him. We don't know why. Maybe something even deeper was going on. But give him credit. And notice how Luke phrases this. Not only did he want to see Jesus, he wanted to see who Jesus was. You see that? He wanted to see who Jesus It's more than just seeing Jesus. He wanted to get to know Jesus. 
Keep that in your mind too because that's going to come back here in just a little bit. So Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. He was rich. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But in verse 3 it says he was short. Jericho, we have a problem. Our friend Zach is a short man with a big problem. He wants to see Jesus, but he can't see over the crowd. Have you ever been there? Have you ever gone to a movie or a ball game or maybe something and the tallest man in the world sits right down in front of you? Especially those of you who are height challenged. Uh, you know what it's like to try to see over people. Well, imagine all these people just lining the roads to see Jesus, and, and there's Zacchaeus. He, he wants to see him, and he's, he, he, but he can't see him. He's got a problem. He's prevented from seeing Jesus. Don't you hate it when you can't see over the crowd? Well, that's where Zacchaeus was. So he was a chief tax collector. He was rich. He wanted to see who Jesus was. He was short, and Luke also tells us that he was created, which is probably how he rose through the ranks to become a chief tax collector. What old Zach does, he runs out ahead of the crowd. There's only one way to go through Jericho, so he knew how Jesus would go, and he goes through, he gets ahead of everybody, and he finds a sycamore tree or a fig tree. And a sycamore tree, the, the, one of the great characteristics is the branches are very low on the trunk. It wouldn't have done Zacchaeus any good to have a tree where the branches are way up here. So he climbs up in that tree. Now can I assure you that in Jesus' day, even in our day, adults don't climb trees. You expect to see kids in trees, right? You expect to see monkeys in trees. Squirrels in trees. For the most part, we adults don't climb trees because we know if we adults climb trees, we end up falling out of the tree, right? Especially as we get older. So we certainly wouldn't expect to see a professional businessman. I want y'all to picture this. Our insurance agent tells us he wants to meet us at the church to talk to us about our church insurance. He wants to look through the building and take a look at everything. So... Uh, two or three of us, we get over here, we get to the parking lot, and when we get here, there he is in that oak tree out there on a limb with a suit and tie and a clipboard in his hand. Wouldn't we think that was a little bit odd? But would you admit that's pretty creative? I could see Zacchaeus lifting his robe up and his short little legs running as hard as he can go to get ahead of the crowd to get up and to climb that tree. And so there he climbs this tree, and he's waiting for Jesus. He's waiting for the Savior to come. And then Luke describes the moment that Jesus is introduced to Zach. Look at verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, so picture this. There Zach is up in his tree, his little legs hanging down. And Jesus stops. Can you imagine what? Zacchaeus thought. Jesus stops. And he looks up. And he the first thing Jesus sees when he looks up is there's Zach grinning at him. You know what Zach is thinking? 
He's saying, boy, can I pick a tree or what? And Jesus says, and what he says next is bound to have shook Zacchaeus to the core. Jesus calls him by name. He says, Zacchaeus. He says, come down from the house or come down from your tree. Get out of there because I must come to your house. I'm going to stay with you. Picture this in your mind. The president is coming to Fairview. And we're not going to give a president name. Let's say this is a very popular president. It might be impossible to find that anymore, so just bear with me for the illustration's purpose. Don't let facts get in the way of a good illustration. The, lot, the street's full of people, and all of a sudden the president's car is driving by, and it stops right in front of you. And lo and behold, the president gets out of his car. And he comes over and he looks at you and says, Marie, I'm coming over to your house. <laughs> Would you be surprised that the president knew your name? Would you be surprised the president wanted to come to your house? And I know it's not exactly an equal illustration here. But the person that all of these people are wanting to come see, first of all, knows Zacchaeus by name. And then wants to go to Zacchaeus' house. Notice Zacchaeus' reaction. Verse 6. So he made haste, came down, and received him how? joyfully. We don't know what happened at Zacchaeus' house. We don't know if Jesus spent the night or if he just ate a meal with him or just spent five minutes. Luke doesn't tell us that part. But something happens at the house of Zacchaeus. We'll get to that in a minute. But before we find out what happens to Zacchaeus, first of all we've talked about Jericho. We've talked about Jesus. We've talked about Zacchaeus. Now we need to talk about another group of folks that are in this story, and that's the people, verse 7. But when they saw it, well, let's read verse 6. So Zacchaeus made haste, came down, and received him joyfully. Zacchaeus is happy, but when they saw it, the people complained, saying, he's going to be with the He's going to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Everything is going great till the church people show up. Everything is wonderful till the church people come along. This word complain, it can also be translated murmured or grumbled or mumbled. Kind of under their lips, I can't believe he's going over I can't believe. And could you see him? He's eating with a, a sinner. I can see him snarl their lips and curl it up when they say the word sinner. I can't believe this rabbi is going into the house of a sinner. 
All through Luke, the church people are just upset with who Jesus hangs out with. But something happened while this was in the house of Zacchaeus. And we don't have a record of the conversation. We don't know what was said. But look at the result in verse 8. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Two things here. First of all, Zacchaeus says, and he makes the statement, he says, I give half my goods to the poor. Before Jesus came to his house, Zacchaeus was all about making money and increasing his wealth. Whatever happened to Zacchaeus in the house with Jesus, now Zacchaeus understands how to use his wealth. And he's given half of what he's got to the poor. Notice with the rich man, Jesus told the rich man to sell all you have and give it to the poor. Jesus understood that the thing keeping the rich man from coming to him was his riches. He doesn't tell Zacchaeus, we don't suppose, to give it all away. But Zacchaeus has a proper understanding of what his money's for. And he gives half of it to the poor. Secondly, Zacchaeus not only redistributes his wealth, but he says, if I have taken, and that word if there could also be translated since. Since I have robbed folks, whatever I've taken, I'm giving back fourfold. If you go back and read the book of Deuteronomy, the usual amount of restitution is double. For example, if I stole $2 from Dexter, if I wanted to make it right, I'd give Dexter $4. If his dollar, $2, and then $2 more. Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give four times. Nobody made him do that. That's the maximum amount that the law would allow him to give. The usual amount was two. The maximum amount was four. Zacchaeus says, I want to give back four, four times what I stole. Then notice what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. What was it that happened to Zacchaeus? He got saved. Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham, not only ethnically, but because of Abraham's faith, Abraham, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Because whatever happened in that house, Zechariah made a claim and a statement of faith about Jesus. And his faith made him the child of Abraham as well, made him saved. And then Jesus tells us in verse 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke tells us, that the main purpose of Jesus Christ on earth when he came as a man was to seek and save the lost. That's why he came. Now, what are some applications that we can make very quickly out of this story? First of all, we need to understand as Christ followers here today that not everybody's looking for Jesus. When we look around Fairview this morning and yesterday and tomorrow, most of the people are not looking for Jesus. How many of you all yesterday 
were stopped at Walmart, and someone said, uh, can you tell me how to get to Jesus? Can you tell me where to find Jesus? How many of us were stopped at the gas station this morning while we were pumping gas by someone who says, excuse me, can, can I bother you? I, I want to see Jesus. Not everybody's looking. Even in Zacchaeus' day, everybody's not looking. But, can I also tell you that even though people say they're looking for Jesus, people look for Jesus for a lot of reasons. Some people look to Jesus in Zach's day to heal them, to feed them entertain them. People today look for Jesus to be a good teacher and give them a good moral compass on how to live. And a lot of people look to Jesus for a lot of different reasons. Not everybody's looking. Not everybody's looking for Jesus for the right thing. Remember, Zach looked to Jesus to see him for who he was. Who Jesus was. And can I tell you, there are some folks that are looking for Jesus for that specific reason. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But can I remind you that before you started seeking Jesus, that Jesus was already seeking you? Zacchaeus, his biggest desire that day was to see Jesus. He climbed a tree to see him. What he didn't know was that Jesus had planned to see him, knew his name. Do you know Jesus knows your name? Even when we look at the world of Christianity and the church, we see so many people, and, and if we're not careful, we can lose our sense of who we are. Can I remind us this morning that Jesus knows your name? He knows when you're hurt. He knows when you're sad. He knows when you're sick. He knows when you're trying to get out of bed when you can't do it. Can I tell you that I had no idea how much I used my stomach muscles until I had six incisions in my stomach muscles. And you try to go from laying down to setting up and you try to go from setting up to standing up. For about four or five days I told Marie, I said, I sure hope the house don't catch on fire because it's going to take me five minutes just to stand up. I probably could have gone quick, quicker if the house was on fire. <laughs> but as bad as I was hurting, and I was breaking out in a sweat from the couch to the bedroom, and it, it, it was rough for three or four days. As bad as I was hurting, did you know Jesus was right there with me for every minute of it? And for those in Fairview that are looking for Jesus, and there are more than we think, Jesus is looking for them too. It's our job as a church to try to put them together. <coughs> also, when we look at the story of Zechariah, we see that Jesus is seeking those the world chooses to ignore. 
Jesus isn't necessarily looking for the rich, the famous, those with a good job, those that can do a lot for the church. You know, sometimes as Christians, if we're not careful, when we think of people coming to our church, we hope that we can find people who are clean cut and they've got their lives together and they're good tithers and their kids know how to behave in church and they come in and they all sit on the pew and they all act right. And sometimes God calls those kind of families. But can I remind us most often, Jesus calls the tax collectors, the poor, maybe those who are mentally slow. We met a guy at Goodwill a couple of weeks ago that I was still sitting in the car. I couldn't go inside to wait. And Marie said, would you mind if I go inside and look? I said, absolutely not. Go ahead. And next thing I know, she's bringing me this fellow, and the fellow wants to talk to me about Jesus. He said, I got it. He said, your wife says you're a pastor. He said, I have some questions I want to ask you. And so we talked quite a bit. And uh, he had talked to Marie inside just came up and started talking and uh, after he and I got done talking he said I want to give you this five dollars to give to your church and I said I don't he was he was scruffy he, he was he we look he, he's he was rough and I said we're okay we don't need he said I said you need that more than you do he said you don't, don't understand he said, if I give you my $5, I won't be tempted to go buy a pack of cigarettes. He said, because I want to make Jesus happy. That man was simple. But you know what? I wish we had a church full of them. Jesus called. Zacchaeus would have been the last person that the citizens of Jericho would expect that Jesus would go to his house. They would have expected him to go to the mayor's house or to the synagogue leader's house, to the priest's house, a tax collector's house. Can I remind us all sitting here this morning, every one of us, we need to hear this. And if you haven't heard anything else, wake up a second. None of us are worthy of following Jesus. Paul gives, he tells us what we all are. He says, there's no one good. No, not one. You say, I'm pretty good. But let me tell you, you might be pretty good, but you're not good enough. None of us are worthy. And how dare we, as God's people, look at someone and say, uh, they wouldn't be interested in the gospel. They're not the right type, the right color, the right skin tone, the right social status, the right job. That's a lesson for us all, right? Tell you something else I learned about Zacchaeus. Don't let your stuff keep you from Jesus. The rich farmer the rich young ruler and the rich man all let their stuff keep him from Jesus. 
Their stuff was more important than Jesus. And you say, well, that's not me because I'm here at church today, Brother Andy, so that doesn't apply to me. Can I tell you, it's more than just coming to church. How do we spend our free time? What do we spend our free, what do we spend our stuff on? And that's a lesson that each of us, just like he told the rich man to sell everything he had and give it to the poor, apparently he didn't tell Zechariah that, but Zechariah was left with the idea, I need to spend my money differently. And so he did. And that leads me to the last application. If you have truly been saved, there'll be a change in the way you live your life. If you've truly been saved, there'll be a change to the way in which you lived your life. I'm going to say something here that's going to be kind of, you may say, huh, when I get done saying it. But I'm going to say it anyway. If you were living the same exact way you lived before you got saved, then you haven't been saved. I'm going to say that again. If you are living your life now and there's absolutely no difference in the way that you lived your life before you got saved, you haven't been saved. Now, let me put a caveat there. I'm not talking about perfection. None of us are perfect. And the longer I walk with Jesus, the more that the Holy Spirit reminds me I'm not perfect. Amen? So I'm not talking about perfection. I know we all have issues. I know we all have things that God's working on in us. It's all different. So I'm not talking about perfection. But what I am saying is, is that when Jesus Christ gives us a new heart and a new will and a new mind, and we have been cleansed and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we die to ourselves. the Holy Spirit lives in us, and we're raised to walk a new life. We're going to be different. Now some people, the speed of which that happens is different than others. Haven't we all seen people that are saved, they're baptized, they come up out of the water, man, they're on fire. And they're just telling everybody about Jesus. And, and that's the way a lot of folks are. Some folks, it's a little slower. And I tell you where it may be a little bit slower, especially if you're one of those who, what we call grow up in the church. Somebody says, I've been a Christian all my life. Can I tell us that's an impossibility? Uh, and while I count it a blessing to have grown up in a Christian home with Christian parents, Christian grandparents who taught me about Jesus, Sometimes, and, there's, and, and I think that, that I wouldn't trade anything for it, but there is a danger sometimes with folks who have had that kind of raising for us to understand we too need to be born again. And if you're already living a moral life, I didn't say sinless, but I said a moral life, that change that's in our life after we're saved, on the outside might not seem as radical, well, let me tell you, there's a difference, at least on the inside. Uh, the day I got saved, I was 17 years old. I was saved the first Sunday of August in 1981. 
Same day we went, to, we went to band camp that year. There was a difference in me. There was a joy in my heart. I was happy. I was excited. And I can't say that I lived dramatically different after I was saved than before I was saved. But there was something that happened in my life where I knew I was saved. And people around me, even at school, would say, there's something different about you. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't create a change in our life, then we need to question, have we truly taken ourselves off the throne of our life and put Jesus Christ on it? Amen? Zacchaeus was saved. How do you know he was saved? Because he lived a totally different life. The Zacchaeus that came out of his house after being with Jesus was day and night different than the Zacchaeus that went into his house with Jesus. Our life needs to be different after we're saved than before we're saved. I understand sometimes even as saved folks, as Christ followers, we wander away, we wander off. That's a different discussion. <coughs> but true salvation brings about a change of life. I want to ask us a question. Is our mission here at Old New Hope Baptist Church, is it the same mission as Jesus? Jesus' mission was to seek and save the lost. What's our mission? You know, I pray that with all the houses and with all the apartment complexes and condos and subdivisions that are going up around Fairview, man, I hope and pray that Old New Hope is packed. Hope all these pews are packed. I pray we get so full that we have to put pews in these other rooms over here, chairs. I pray we get so full that we have to tear down these walls and make this one big worship center. But I don't pray that prayer, and I don't have that desire just because I want to see a bunch of people. What I understand is that every person that sits in our building, there's a soul. And if they're lost, I'm praying they come to Jesus. Bring on the messy. It might not always be pretty. They might be dressed roughly. They might smell like alcohol. They might be dirty. coming to see Jesus. I told y'all the very first church I pastored was in Southern California. And we were right off the beach. and uh, It was called El Toro then. It's now been, El Toro's not a city anymore. There's a big marine base there that's shut down now. But we were right off the coast of Laguna Beach. And it was about 9.30 Pacific Standard Time. I was teaching Sunday school. This is as vivid to me as us sitting here talking today. And when uh, I was in the middle of teaching Sunday school, this what we met in a storefront. 
And this woman comes busting in the doors in a very skimpy two-piece bikini. And, of course, when somebody busts in the door, everybody turns around and looks, and, boy, just the jaws dropped. I, you know, how somebody coming to church dressed like that? What in the world is going on? And I've got to admit, the first thing I thought, she wants money. Isn't that terrible? I did. She comes to the front. Of, she said, you got to help me. I said, what, what, what's the matter? And she said, uh, she goes, I had a nightmare last night that I was dying and going to hell. And she said, I, she goes, you got to help me. I don't want to, I don't want to. She said, I'm sorry. She goes, I'm on vacation. I came here to go to the, she said, I'm sorry with the way I'm dressed. But she said, you got to help me. And we talked to her and we shared Jesus with her. She became a Christian. She became a member of our church. She became a Sunday school teacher. Married a fellow. They raised godly children. My first thought was when I saw her is, don't you come in here dressed like that? But the Lord very quickly showed me. Andrew Plank, she belongs to me. So it may not always be pretty. Ministry is messy. Lostness is messy. You know what sinful people do? Sinful people sin. If we expect the world to live like Christians, that's an unrealistic expectation. What sinful people need is not cleaned up. You know, a person who's dirty, his biggest need is not a bath. His biggest need is the blood of Jesus. Because can I tell you, if you let the blood of Jesus cleanse you, everything else will work itself out. If you've truly been saved, you'll spend the rest of your life becoming more like Jesus. We as Christians sometimes say, boy, I just wish people in Fairview, I wish they'd quit cussing. I wish they'd quit drinking. I wish they'd quit fornicating. I wish they'd quit watching pornography. I, I wish they'd quit doing drugs. I wish they'd quit doing that. Did you know that if everybody in Fairview quit doing all that stuff, if they didn't know Jesus, they'd still be just as lost? But they'd be probably in a more dangerous position. They'd think they're pretty good, so they think they're okay. Our world's greatest need is a Savior. Jesus' biggest reason for coming was to seek and save the lost. And our job at Old New Hope Baptist Church is to try to get those folks to 